hello, hello. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. Today is episode 98, and we will be venturing into Neuroland a little bit, talking about the different levels of consciousness and what they mean. So, this is really important because I've seen a lot of variability amongst nurses about what is lethargy versus what is somnolence versus what is just plain patient is asleep. So knowing your proper terms and how you describe patients will go a long way toward painting an accurate clinical picture. So we'll get into that in just a moment. But first, it is time for our listener shout out. And today's listener shout out goes to future nurse Steph. So Steph, thank you so much for taking the time to write in. And I'm going to read what you wrote. And Steph wrote, Nurse Mo's podcasts are the perfect supplement to lectures. They reinforce my knowledge and help me understand the larger picture when I need to go back to the basics to then be able to break it down to the specifics. I find myself answering exam and quiz questions based on what I've heard Nurse Mo say. I appreciate you for your love of nursing and love of teaching. You put so much great karma into this world. I hope one day to be able to pass it down to future nursing students. Steph, thank you so very much for sharing that. That makes me smile. So thank you so much. And if you guys want to be on the listener shout out, all it takes is a moment to go to wherever you get your podcasts and write a review and share how Straight A Nursing podcast has helped you or inspires you to be a great teacher someday as well, because we are all nurses and therefore we are all teachers. So thanks again, Steph. Really appreciate it. Okay, you guys. So let's talk about levels of consciousness. So you'll notice when you start getting into clinical, maybe you're already there or you're working as a nurse that when you get to that drop down box, if this is how your uh, electronic medical record works with all the drop down boxes, that when you're documenting your patient's level of consciousness, there's a whole bunch of choices there. Um, And it can be overwhelming and you might feel like you're kind of guessing. I think I mean, I feel like I did initially, and as I mentioned in last week's podcast episode, it was one of those skills that seemed so basic that I was almost too embarrassed to admit that I didn't really understand the difference between some of these. So I did what any good nurse would do. I didn't just make assumptions, and I didn't just keep on going along without knowing what I needed to know. I went and looked it up, learned it, and then applied it, and now I understand it. So I want to save you guys that internal embarrassment of maybe not understanding something, and we'll just talk about it here quickly, um, and then hopefully you'll feel a lot more confident when you're recording your patient's levels of consciousness. Some of the ways that hospitals track how sick patients are involve these complicated algorithms. And that data for those algorithms come from the things that you put in the chart. And if you put in a different level of consciousness than what is actually happening, it might score your patient as a higher or lower acuity than they actually are. So just knowing that, you can understand why it's important that you get this information accurate in your medical record. Plus, you also just want to paint an accurate clinical picture of each patient. Okay, so when you're 
going through your charting and you need to document your patient's level of consciousness, you will see that there's several different options, right? Your patient can be alert, they could be confused, they could be agitated, they could be uh, comatose, they could be all kinds of different things anywhere in between. So knowing the difference between these uh, is really going to help you accurately communicate your patient's condition. And so the different levels of consciousness are alert, confused, somnolent, lethargic, obtended, stuporous, and unresponsive. So there's seven right there. And that doesn't even go into the hyperactive ones like anxious, agitated, um, I forget what the others are. After that, it's just starts to get complicated and your patient starts to become a little bit of a handful. But um, we're just talking about from alert and oriented and then below. So let's talk just briefly about what each of these are. And then we'll do a little pod quiz at the end to see if you're um, understanding it. Okay, so alert means your patient is awake, they are responsive. You walk into the room and their eyes are open, they are responsive to their environment, maybe they look over at you as you walk in or they're watching TV or talking to a family member, they're responding to their environment. That is your patient that is alert, okay? Then we have confused. So confused patients are often very alert, (laughs) sometimes maybe not as much, but confused is definitely an alteration in their level of consciousness. So this This person could be confused um, at the alert state all the way down to the, you know, that stuporous state. So it can occur anywhere along this spectrum. And just because someone is farther down on the spectrum than confused, like say they're somnolent, when they wake up and answer you, they aren't necessarily confused. So you just have to remember that just because they're confused. Confused doesn't mean um, that if they were in a lower level of consciousness that they would also be confused. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. It might make sense as we get to talking about it a little bit more. Um, It is possible, you know, just for the short version, to have a patient who's somnolent, who is completely oriented once you get them awake, you know, and they're talking to you. So alert, awake, and responsive, confused, they are maybe unsure of where they are, what day it is, why they're there, what if it's day or night. Um, They could be um, mildly confused to drastically confused. So a lot of times you can get a feel for a patient's level of confusion by basic conversation with them, but you shouldn't just leave it at that. You should always ask the patient um, what their name is. And do you know where you are? And, you know, the alert patient who's oriented will look at you like you're a weirdo. Like, of course, I'm in a hospital. But sometimes patients don't know they're in the hospital. So that patient is confused. Sometimes they'll have a hard time coming up with the word. Um, They'll know it's kind of a familiar environment, but they won't be able to state what it is. So sometimes what I'll say is, Um, is this a post office or is this a hospital? You know, some kind of obvious choice like that. Is this a basketball game for high schoolers or is this a hospital? You know, so like two choices. One is very clearly hospital and see if they're able to go, oh yeah, I'm in the hospital. Okay, yeah, it's all coming back to me. All right, so we have confused. Next, we have somnolent. This is your patient that is sleepy. Patients that are 
Um, some patients will be somnolent and then wake up, you know, how you do when your alarm goes off in the morning. You might be somnolent initially, but then you quickly become alert. The somnolent patient stays somnolent. You're talking to them and they're just really sleepy and maybe not engaging as much, maybe not paying as much attention to you. They're definitely sleepy. And then we have the lethargic patient. So lethargic or lethargy is a step below somnolent. It's more so. This patient is very, very drowsy. They will probably fall asleep in between care. They may or may not sleep like fall asleep mid-sentence, but I have had patients that fall asleep mid-sentence, especially like a long sentence, um, and it kind of trails off and then they're out again. This patient will typically go back to sleep or back to their, you know, their decreased LOC when you are no longer stimulating them, talking to them, touching them, rousing them, doing all of that. So that patient is lethargic, very, very drowsy. Obtunded patients are arousable, but very difficult to arouse, um, but possibly can be roused, okay? This I would see a lot with my patients, you know, that have like metabolic acidosis. You have to do a sternal rub to get them to rouse, and then they don't stay awake for very long. And then stuporous, this patient... Very, very difficult to arouse. So if you're getting very minimal response, maybe a little bit of a movement to response, maybe a grunt, that's more decreased LOC than obtunded. Stuporous would be one step above comatose or unresponsive, which is our final layer. So this patient is completely unarousable. Okay, so let's just go real quick, top to bottom, alert, they're awake, they're responsive to their environment. Doesn't mean they're not confused, but they're alert and responsive to their environment. Confused is, like I said, simply a confused patient. Somnolent is sleepy. That one's easy. They both start with an S, okay? Lethargic is very drowsy, probably falling asleep in between care, maybe trailing off sentences and falling asleep mid-sentence. Obtunded, arousable, but it takes a little bit of effort. Stuporous, a lot of effort is needed to get any response from the patient. And then unresponsive or comatose is the patient who is absolutely unarousable. You're doing painful stimuli and they're still not having any response. So when we talk about painful stimuli, there's central and peripheral painful stimulus. And when you learn how to do a neuro exam, which we're not going to go into a whole thing about how to do neuro exams, you'll do different kinds of painful stimuli to see if your patient will wake. So a sternal rub, that's more central. Pinching the trapezius, that's more central. Putting a pen um, across the nail bed and pushing down and creating nail bed pressure, that's peripheral and that is extremely painful. If you want to try it on yourself, I would do it very lightly at first and then imagine how much that would hurt if somebody was really cramming down on that pen. So when we're talking about a patient being unresponsive, we're talking about doing something pretty painful to see if we can elicit a response. And then I always apologize to them because I think 
I hope they can still hear me. And if they can, I want them to know that I felt really bad about having to do that. So anyway, that is just kind of the top to bottom range of levels of consciousness. So let's say um, I had a patient recently who was stuporous upon arrival. Okay, so let's say you've got a patient who's stuporous upon arrival and you're working in the ICU. So what was stuporous again on that level? Are they rousable or not? Okay, so stuporous would be very difficult to get them to have any kind of response. So they come in like that, and then they quickly became unresponsive. And if that happens, um, you're going to have to do some kind of immediate intervention in order to keep this patient safe. Most of the time, it will be intubating them because they're not able to protect their airway. So um, just know that Keeping a close eye on your patient's level of consciousness is really, really important. Um, had I not known how to describe this patient's level of consciousness as I was communicating my concerns to the MD, um, then there could have been a really big communication gap between me and the doctor. So um, knowing, you know, stating they came in stuporous and they're now unresponsive shows a distinct change in patient condition. So using standardized language is really helpful, especially when you're describing things that, you know, neuro exams, neurostatus can be very subjective because the nuances of change between one level to another or a abnormal finding can sometimes be very subtle. So always using the proper language is very, very key. Okay, so let's go through a little case study scenario. But before we do, la do that, let's do a quick little quiz on the levels. Are you ready? Okay, I'm going to describe a level of consciousness and you tell me which one it is. Your patient is very sleepy but they stay awake even when you're not stimulating them, but they're sleepy. Good. That patient is somnolent. Excellent. What about your patient that is difficult to arouse? You can rouse them, but it, was, it took some effort. That patient is obtunded. What about your patient that is awake and responsive? Yes, that one is alert. Very good. What about your patient that... You can wake up, but as soon as you stop pricking their finger for their blood sugar check, they go right back out. That patient is lethargic. Excellent. How about your patient? You do a sternal rub and they groan and bat your hand away. Okay, that patient is stuporous. They were rousable, but it was very difficult. You had to really rub them. They didn't really talk to you, but they did respond. They, you know, they kind of hit at your hand. And then what about your patient where you do that nail bed pressure and you get no movement, nothing? Good. That patient is unresponsive or comatose. Okay, perfect. All right, so here's a little case study. We'll go through this or a little uh, scenario. In report, you learn this about your patient. You have a 56-year-old female patient with chronic kidney disease in stage 4. Patient also has CHF, type 2 diabetes, and hyperlipidemia. Let's say her name is Lisa. Hopefully I can remember that much. So Lisa was brought in by ambulance yesterday. She had shortness of breath. She's currently on 6 liters of oxygen right now. Her blood pressure is 110 over 68. Her heart rate is 77. 
and her O2 saturation is 94%. She has no fever. Her urine output was minimal overnight at 20 mils per hour. It was dark and was very concentrated. Her chemistry panel shows mild hyperkalemia. She's got an elevated BUN and creatinine and is mildly anemic with hemoglobin of 9.2. Her white blood cell count is within normal limits. So I want to give you guys a quick tip. When you're getting case study scenarios on exams or in class or when you're working on an assignment, it's so easy to get bogged down in the detail of the numbers, the detail of the vital signs, right? So a little trick that I do is as I'm going through, let's say as we're going through the vital signs, I just think too high, too low, or okay. And that's all I really need to know. So when we look at this, we've got a patient who was brought in by ambulance for shortness of breath. She's currently on six liters oxygen. That's not good. Okay, so all I need to think of in my head is not good. Her blood pressure is 110 over 68. Do I need to remember those exact numbers or do I just need to think to myself, that's probably okay. I mean, unless her standard baseline blood pressure is 180, I'm going to say a blood pressure of 110 is probably okay for her right now. Her heart rate is 77, too high, too low, or okay. I say that's okay. Her O2 set is 94%. That's okay, but she's requiring a fair amount of oxygen to get there. So that one I'm going to be kind of clued into that there's something, you know, that I want to pay attention to. She's afebrile, where right now I can just kind of put aside any brain cells that would be thinking about fever because right now she doesn't have one. Her urine output was minimal overnight. Okay, so right there we have another problem. But wait, she has chronic kidney stage 4. Without knowing what her baseline urine output is, I can't really say if this is normal or not for her, but if I had been taking care of her or knew what her baseline was, all this stuff about her urine being dark and concentrated, her BUN and creatinine being up, her mild anemia, that might all be totally normal for her, and it shouldn't be um, putting off too many alarm bells in my head. So when you look at that scenario and you think of things in terms of too high, too low, or okay, then really what we're looking at, for the most part, is her O2 saturation level is 94% on six liters of oxygen. On six liters of oxygen, I would hope someone's oxygen saturation level is more like 97, 98, um, maybe 99, but 94 makes me feel like, hmm, maybe she might be having, she's probably having some difficulty with her respiratory status. So that's just a quick little way to go through your case studies. So at the time of your initial assessment of Lisa at 8 a.m., you note that she opens her eyes spontaneously and she responds to questions, though not all of her answers make sense, but some of them do. She will follow simple one-step commands, but when you ask her to do more than one thing at a time, she doesn't always do both things. You ask your patient where she is right now, and she says, I'm in my living room. At this time, your patient is alert and confused, okay? Alert and confused. One hour later at 0900, you bring Lisa her medications. She wakes easily to voice, but yawns a few times and states she just wants to sleep. At this point, your patient is somnolent. 
So she was sleepy. She wakes up fine, but she tells you, I'm sleepy. I'm just tired. I want to sleep. At 10 o'clock, one hour later, you go in to help Lisa get repositioned and cozy in bed, and you notice that she opens her eyes only to voice or stimulation. She doesn't open her eyes spontaneously, and it takes a pretty loud, repeated voice to get her to open her eyes. She follows some basic commands and is slow to respond to you. She drifts off again once you're not stimulating her anymore. So right now, Lisa is lethargic. At 12 o'clock, two hours later, your patient is more difficult to wake up. Her responses are delayed and very minimal. She does not appear to be fully awake when stimulated, and she immediately goes back to sleep when not stimulated. When she does answer questions, she mumbles confused, barely making sense, barely able to form words. At this time, she is obtunded. By 1300, Lisa can only be aroused by vigorous and repeated stimulation. When the stimulation stops, she immediately lapses back into her unresponsive state. The only vocalizations that she's making at this time are some moans. Lisa is now stuporous or in a stupor. At 1400, Lisa is unarousable to any stimulation of any kind, even vigorous and painful stimuli. At this point, she is unresponsive, also referred to as comatose. Okay, so in a perfect world, a patient would not be left to just deteriorate like this, but I just wanted to illustrate how someone could go through all the stages of decreased levels of consciousness and how that might look clinically when you assess and interact with the patient. So with a patient like this, who has that chronic kidney disease, whose urine output's been minimal... They're probably looking at having, you know, assume the doctor has ordered an ABG. I would be most suspicious that she has a metabolic acidosis and needs to be dialyzed in order to get things back into balance. So a lot of times someone like Lisa would get dialysis and start coming back to her baseline mental status, you know, assuming she doesn't have anything else going on that would cause that, uh, that decrease in LOC. So another common situation that this type of situation occurs in is a COPD exacerbation. Um, this pH will... Um, decrease, sorry, the pH will decrease as the CO2 increases. So they get more acidotic and it's a respiratory acidosis. So as the CO2 rises, the patient gets more and more sleepy and more and more comatose. And usually what we do is we pull the patient out of this by giving, um, administering BiPAP treatment, BiPAP therapy, which helps them get that CO2 levels normalized. And then they wake up Hopefully, usually they wake up and then they they sometimes do okay after they wake up and we take the BiPAP off and they can manage. Sometimes they'll get um, acidotic again, hypercapnic again, that CO2 level rising, need BiPAP put on again. A lot of pay. I mean, BiPAP's pretty, I mean, I've never had it on me. I don't think I would like it. It looks pretty awful. 
Um, I almost think I'd rather be intubated and, and night night, but um, BiPAP as a short-term bridge therapy is great at avoiding intubations in patients. Um, a lot of times though, the BiPAP isn't enough for these patients with really bad COPD exacerbation and they may need to be intubated and mechanically ventilated in order to balance out their, their CO2. So you'll see this scenario play out over and over again in telemetry and the ICU, especially where the patient gets uh, hypercapnic with the CO2 going up, they get somnolent. You put the BiPAP on, they wake up, they don't want to wear the BiPAP, they take it off, they're agitated. Then after a while, they get somnolent again because their CO2 is creeping up, put the BiPAP back on and it go round and round and round it goes, which is just an unfortunate way to spend your shift and, you know, really hard for the patient as well. So, I hope that helped you guys understand all the different levels of consciousness. I found it really interesting myself. And now that I understand the words and the terminology better, I feel a lot more confident in describing how my patients are presenting when I do assess them and then chart that in the record. So I just wanted to remind you guys that the July planners are available. If you're listening to this in real time, they're available on the Etsy shop and on the website. So check it out at straightinnursingstudent.com or I'll link to the Etsy shop below. If you go to Etsy and search for straight A nursing, it's going to come up. And it's a great planner for nursing students. I hope a lot of you have used it and really love it. So it's available again for the July to June um, dates. So July 20 to June 21. And next week, you guys, I'm very excited. We're going to be talking about, well, I'm not excited. I want to sound like a weirdo, but we'll be talking about end of life care and what that means and what that entails. Um, it has been my great honor and privilege to be with many patients at end of life. And I consider it one of the most compassionate things that we as nurses can do. So we'll be talking about that next week. So I will see you back here. Until then, have a great week and take good care. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.